Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 714 for the 9th of October, 2020. This week, sometimes a magic wand can be handy, like when you need to use a computer that isn't yours and you don't want to leave any data behind. In short circuits, all operating systems have a couple of useful utilities that can show you where a problem is when you can't reach a website or some other device with an IP address. In spare parts only on the website, Google Maps has a new layer that might be on your phone. Not all phones have the COVID-19 information layer yet, though. Facebook continues to shut down fraudulent accounts. And 20 years ago, remember SCSI drives? That's an acronym for Small Computer System Interface, not an opinion about the quality of the drive. Have you ever wished that you had a magic wand in your pocket? Maybe your computer isn't working quite right. Or maybe you're in the office and need access to your personal email account. Or maybe you need to use a computer that isn't yours and you don't want to leave any traces. That's where the magic wand comes in. But unlike the kind of device Harry Potter carried around, you don't have to visit Ollivander's in Diagon Alley. It won't even cost you seven galleons. You can make a magic wand from any old thumb drive that's lying around and a variety of portable applications that can be downloaded and installed for free. If there's no thumb drive lying around, you might have to buy one. So, okay, maybe you'll have to spend 10 bucks or so for a small thumb drive. It's a good investment. There are two options. You can do it the easy way or the slightly less easy way. To find a hard way, you'd have to really work at it. There are also several options, but today I'll be looking at portable apps because it's free, it's easy to use, and it offers a comprehensive batch of tools. The tagline on the Portable Apps website is, Your Computer Without the Computer. Even if you download all of the more than 400 apps, they would consume only 35 gigabytes of disk space, and 64 gigabyte thumb drives can be found for less than $10. Some stores even give these away as promotional items. Because these are portable apps, they run directly from the thumb drive without need for installation. You won't find applications here like Microsoft Word or Adobe Illustrator because all of the apps are free and open source. Some of them may request a donation, as does portable apps, but you can use them all without paying anything. You'll just have to deal with your conscience. To see a list of all the apps, visit the apps page on the Portable Apps website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Download the Portable Apps installer and save it wherever you normally store downloaded applications. And maybe you're wondering what's the difference between apps and portable apps. Well, portable apps differ from standard versions of various applications in that they do not need to be installed. But, of course, the Portable Apps application does need to be installed on the portable device where you want to use it. The application and all of the apps can be placed on a thumb drive or stored in a cloud-based directory. They'll run from either location. 
When you unplug the thumb drive or disconnect from the remote directory, none of your information will be left behind on the computer. So you want to start by formatting the thumb drive. Windows will probably suggest formatting it as EFAT, that's the Extended File Allocation Table, but you might think it would be a good idea to change it to NTFS. After all, Windows uses the NT file system for its internal drives. Because you're making a utility disk that will run only on Windows, it doesn't really make much difference. Sometimes, though, USB drives are used to share files between Windows computers and Mac OS computers. Macs can read files from an NTFS volume, but they can't edit or write files to an NTFS volume unless you've installed a special extension. The better choice is to use EFAT instead of NTFS. Just avoid using FAT32 if it is offered. Now, there is one situation in which using FAT32 format is right. That's a topic for a few minutes from now. Once you've formatted the thumb drive, you want to prepare portable apps by running its installer. The installer can perform either of two tasks, either install portable apps for the first time or update an existing installation to add or remove apps. When you update the application at some future date, make sure that Portable Apps itself is not running at the time. You'll need to accept a standard license agreement. The third screen is where you specify whether you're doing a new installation or an update. You can ignore the Custom Installation option because that question will return on the next screen. On the fourth screen, there are several options for the installation. The most common is to install on a thumb drive, but you can also choose to install on a cloud-based system, to install locally for the current user or for all users, or to select a custom location. You can still ignore that custom location thing because it'll be back on the next screen. Because I selected Portable on the previous screen, screen 5 of the installer looks for the thumb drive. In my case, it found 1. If you have multiple thumb drives attached to the computer, make sure you select the right one. And then there's that Select Custom Location again. If you want to install portable apps somewhere other than the root directory on the thumb drive, you can set that up here. But why? And on screen 6, before clicking that Install button, confirm that the location is right. When the installation is complete, navigate to the thumb drive with a file explorer and double-click start.exe. Then select the portable applications you want to add to the thumb drive and click the Next button to start the process. You'll probably see a warning that some of the portable apps will need input from you as they are being installed. Click OK and proceed. Depending on the number of apps you've selected and how many of them need you to click installation dialog boxes, the process may take a while. It's important to note here that the portable applications are not being installed on your computer, despite the term installation. They're simply being installed on the portable apps application on the thumb drive. If you examine the portable apps directory on the thumb drive when the process is complete, you'll see that there is a new directory for each application that you installed. When you need one of those portable applications, plug the thumb drive in and run start.exe. Portable apps will open in the lower right corner of the screen, and it will list the installed applications. For a nicely organized view of the apps by type, click All Portable Apps at the bottom of the list. 
To use one of the applications, select the App Category and click it to open the list, then click the name of the application. Some of the applications will open immediately, and others, if they would be capable of making system changes, will display a user access control warning. When Portable Apps opens, it will check the installed apps to see if any of them have been updated since you last used the thumb drive. If updates are available, you can have Portable Apps download and add the new versions to the thumb drive, or wait for a better time. And as useful as a Portable Apps thumb drive is, you might want another one just in case of an emergency, another one with different applications on it. In the old days, when something went wrong with your Windows 95 computer, you just booted the machine from the first of 13 floppy disks and either fixed the problem with it or reinstalled Windows. Windows 98 was primarily distributed on CDs, but there was a floppy disk version. It spanned 39 disks. The number for Windows 95 is correct because it's from Microsoft's Raymond Chen. The discount for Windows 98, I'm not positive. I think that sounds right, but it's from a non-Microsoft source. The CDs were bootable too, and eventually Microsoft added repair and recovery features. Maybe you remember the Ultimate Boot CD, or UBCD. It was what was really needed back in those days when something went wrong, but floppy disks are gone and few computers have optical drives. Now you need a bootable thumb drive when you run into a serious problem. Maybe you'd like to have the Ultimate Boot CD on a thumb drive. The current version, 5.3.9, includes more than 100 PC hardware diagnostic tools. If you want to do that, you need to start by downloading the ISO file. The ISO file is an image of UBCD. You'll find a link to the location where you can download the ISO file on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll also find a link to the Pendrive Linux website, and you'll go there to get a USB installer. For this, you'll need a USB thumb drive that is at least 512 megabytes. Good luck finding a thumb drive that small. And the thumb drive can be no larger than 32 gigabytes. That's because disks larger than 32 gigabytes must be formatted as EFAT or NTFS. Thumb drives used to boot the computer must be formatted FAT32. To comply with truth in technology reporting, I have to say that it is possible to format larger drives as FAT32. It's a complicated process, though. Use either an empty thumb drive or one with no important data on it because the drive is going to be formatted and that will delete everything. The universal USB installer that you've downloaded from Pendrive Linux makes creation of the boot drive easy. Insert the USB thumb drive and run the application to start it. On the initial screen, click to display a long list of potential ISO files and choose Ultimate Boot CD. Then click the Browse button to locate the ISO file. When you click the Step 3 button, you may see more than one USB drive. If so, choose carefully because the process will delete anything that's on that drive. Confirm that you've selected the correct USB drive and then click the Yes button. The process takes only a few minutes and it should end with a success message. You now have an emergency boot disk, but you're not done. Once you've created the Ultimate Boot CD thumb drive, you should test it. If your computer has been set up to look for a USB boot device before it looks for a hard drive, you won't need to make any changes. That probably isn't the case, though, so you will need to modify some BIOS settings. 
Each computer manufacturer has a specific way for users to access the BIOS settings, and sometimes these even vary from one model to another within a particular manufacturer. So check the manual that came with your... Wait a minute. Manual? What manual? Oh, forget the manual. Visit the manufacturer's website. Maybe you'll find out there how to get to the BIOS settings. And once you get to the BIOS settings, be careful in there because some of the changes might keep the computer from booting at all or might cause it to malfunction. One or two changes will be needed in the boot section of the BIOS page. Most relatively new computers use the Unified Extensible Firmware Interface or UEFI boot mode. If this is enabled, change it to legacy mode. If there's an option for boot system priority, set legacy first. If there is an option for USB boot, make sure it is enabled. Then change the computer's boot device order so that the USB device is at the top of the list in the legacy section. And note that you may need to change the boot mode and priority first, then reboot the computer and get back to the BIOS to see the legacy items. After you've changed the settings, choose the Save and Exit option. The computer will then boot to the Ultimate Boot CD. And once you've confirmed the operation, reboot the computer to the BIOS settings and restore the original settings if the default boot mode was UEFI. The computer will operate normally if you leave it in legacy mode, but security is compromised. So, for a UEFI system, you will need to visit the BIOS settings before you use the Ultimate Boot CD. For information about the utilities on the disk and how to use them, you can start at the UBCD website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And then follow links to the various utilities that you want to use. Yeah, that's a little complicated. So ideally, when one computer has a problem, you'll have an alternate computer, a tablet, or a phone that you can use to obtain information about how to use the emergency thumb drive. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, two of the most useful applications on any computer are ping and traceroute. Individually and together, they can help you find out why a website is slow or missing. Traceroute has two alternate spellings. On uh, Mac OS computers and Linux computers, it's traceroute, the whole word. On Windows computers, it's traceRT. Regardless of the spelling, though, the information returned is the same. Both Ping and Traceroute provide some of the same basic information, whether a local or remote IP address is reachable, Ping is faster and easier to understand, and Traceroute returns more information. In addition to telling you whether an IP address is reachable, Traceroute also specifies the exact path between your computer and the other IP address. Internet connections aren't like plain old telephone service or POTS connections. With wired telephones, connections are made via a series of central offices, and essentially you have a connection between two points and the data flow is continuous. 
in reality, it's a lot more complicated, but bear with me here. Internet connections, on the other hand, are not continuous. They send data in packets that can be broken up and may be sent using varying routes. The packets are reassembled when they're received. And this is the case for email, audio, video, and all other data that travels across the Internet. So if you're having a problem with a website or an IP address that you can't reach, try ping first. This can be a website, an email, an FTP server, or even a local device. Anything that's on the network. So the first tool grab usually is ping. Ping will tell you whether the destination IP is reachable and how good the connection is. On a Windows computer, you can open a command window or a PowerShell window. On macOS or Linux systems, use a terminal window. And then you'll type a command something like ping ftp.techbiter.com, and you'll see the results. Windows computers return four test results. Mac OS and Linux computers will continue pinging the target until you stop the process, unless you specify a particular number of packets to be sent by adding an argument at the end of the line. And if you want a Windows computer to ping continuously, add dash T at the end of the command. So then you should see several lines of data that would look something like reply from 67.222.41.89, bytes equal 32, time equals 84 milliseconds, TTL equals 49. Or you might see something that looks like request timed out. If you see request timed out, of course, the IP address is not reachable. Even if there are four successful returns, examine the other numbers on the lines. The first series of numbers you'll see, 67.222.41.89 in this case, illustrates the IP address of the target. The byte count, bytes equal 32, that shows the number of bytes in the packet. The default is 32 bytes, but this can be changed using a switch at the end of the command. The time value is important. It reflects the amount of time it took for the packet to reach the target computer and be returned to your computer. The time is measured in milliseconds, and shorter is better. Any number lower than 100 milliseconds, or one-tenth of a second, is acceptable. The return of 200 milliseconds is bad. If you see something in the range of 1,000 milliseconds, a full second in other words, that would be horrible. And the final value on the line is time to live, TTL. The destination device will set a value, and the number will be decreased by 1 each time a packet passes through a server. If the count reaches 0, the ping will report TTL expired in transit. That's used to avoid having a packet bounce infinitely between two devices. The value is often set at 255, so if you see a value of 49, that might indicate that the packet traversed 206 servers. I say might because we don't know the value that the target system assigned. Ping has a bunch of other switches. If you'd like to see what they are, type ping space forward slash question mark on a Windows computer or man space ping on a Mac OS or Linux machine. Man is short for manual. Information provided on a Mac OS computer and a Linux computer will look similar. Windows will provide the same kind of information, but it'll be formatted differently. So once you've tried ping, try Traceroute. At its most basic, Traceroute also tells whether a target address is reachable. That's like saying at its most basic, your high school football team does the same thing that the Kansas City Chiefs do, play football. 
Trace Roots display varies from one operating system to another. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I have demonstrated it using a Windows computer where it's called Trace RT. Presumably that name goes back to the earliest days of Microsoft operating systems, but that's only a guess on my part. If ping showed poor results, Traceroute might help you determine where the problem is. You'll see an example response on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. The first line confirms the target, just as it did with ping. And if you see something like unable to resolve target system name, confirm that you've spelled the target right, or that the IP address is right if you've used that instead of a name. If you're certain that the name or the IP address you've used is correct, and you still see that unable to resolve message, then there's a problem with the name server your computer or your router uses. And by the way, I described how to change the name server in a segment called Don't Trust Your IP's Domain Name Service. There's a link to it on the TechBinder Worldwide website, so check that out and see if that corrects the problem. When you're able to establish a connection, Traceroute returns some information. You'll be able to interpret it. What looks like gibberish is actually a lot of useful information. Each numbered step represents one hop in the journey between your computer and the target. Each hop signifies a different server. The first couple of hops will be on your network. Middle hops show your internet service provider and public internet routing. And the final few should be at or near the target location. That first hop will be to your router, and it should typically be instantaneous, less than one millisecond. You'll also see three round-trip time values on each line. Essentially, these are just pings that are sent to each computer along the route. Watch for consistency here. The numbers need not be identical, but they should be close. In the example I show on the TechBiter Worldwide website, the ping to the Wide Open West server returns 156 milliseconds, 16 milliseconds, and 13 milliseconds. Two of the values are similar, but one is 10 times larger than the other. Any number over about 150 is unacceptable for connections within the continental United States. If you see an asterisk in place of any of the round-trip time numbers, the packet was not returned to your computer. A combination of high and missing numbers for a given op suggests that that location is where the problem exists. Depending on the target system and the version of traceroute that you're using, you might see a series of hops at the end with nothing but asterisks. This usually indicates that a firewall rule at the target is blocking return packets, and if you see those, they can usually be ignored. If you identify a problem, the next step involves using a Whois service. I've got a link to one of those on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And you can use Whois to identify the owner of the server. If the problem is with your internet service provider, filing a complaint with the ISP may help. If you're checking your own website and it's a problem there, then contacting the hosting service provider would be appropriate. But if the problem is somewhere in the middle, there's not much you can do other than wait. But at least you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that it's not your problem. You won't need either ping or traceroute to find spare parts. Just head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Google Maps has a new layer that might not yet be on your phone. Not all phones have the COVID-19 information layer currently. Facebook continues to shut down fraudulent accounts. And 20 years ago, remember SCSI drives? That's an acronym for Small Computer System Interface, not an opinion about the quality of the drive. 
Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.